we are all carrying around these pocket computers that are internet connected, that have incredible cameras on top of them with GPS chips activated. And I think we're entering an, an interesting time of pervasive mapping. You know, when everyone has access to location information and the ability to contribute that back into the whole. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Jonathan Neufeld. He is the CEO of a company called Tectera. So Tectera focuses on helping companies develop and commercialize geospatial technology. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about his work, the trends he sees in the industry at the moment in terms of business plans focused around geospatial technology. and. And we're also going to talk about an idea of a one-to-one -one map and what that might mean. So stick around, it's a really interesting conversation. If you're new here and haven't su subscribed yet, consider doing so. This is a weekly podcast, so next week there'll be another one coming out and I wouldn't want you to miss out. Also, if you could do me a huge favor and share this with a friend. If you know someone who might enjoy this kind of content, I would really appreciate it if you would share this with them. Okay, let's get into the interview. John, welcome to the podcast. You are the CEO of a company called TechTerra. This is a geospatial podcast, so TechTerra has something to do with, with, with geospatial and the geospatial industry, and I'd like to talk about that in just a minute. But before we actually dive into that side of the conversation, perhaps you could take the time to introduce yourself and your geospatial background to the listeners. Yeah, you bet, Daniel. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here today. I'm the leader of TechTerra. We're based here in Calgary, but I've had a pretty good career in geospatial uh, before I ended up here. You know, I've got a background in geomatics engineering from the University of Calgary, and I spent quite a few years traveling around with uh, aerial photo crews doing aerial surveys, both in photo and radar, um, all across North America, and, and had the good fortune to spend some time in Europe and Asia doing that as well. So I've seen many different facets of the geospatial industry, and uh, excited now to be helped leading it in a new forward-looking direction. Okay, so maybe we could dive into what TechTerra is for a company. What, what, what does it do? Yeah, absolutely. We are a government-funded nonprofit based here in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. The main thing that we focus on is helping companies develop and commercialize innovative geospatial technologies. What we really want to see is companies take a risk on building something new that they might not have otherwise been able to do develop a new technology, and then get it out into the market. Um, it's exciting to see those new technologies flourish and grow, and it's exciting to see companies being created and growing and employing new people and, and really adding to the economy here in Alberta. So uh, I'm curious why Alberta decided to create a, a company like this or a, an organization like this and focus specifically on geospatial. Is this part of a plethora of, of other organizations that they're sort of wanting to get out there in the world? Or, or was there a reason why geospatial was important to focus on? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Alberta has been a leader in geospatial for quite some time. The University of Calgary here was one of the first universities to have a department of geomatics engineering and for a long time was one of only two in Canada that offered that. Those have since grown, obviously. But Tectera was set up because geomatics was recognized as an area in which uh, Alberta could be a leader and also an area of strategic importance when looking at both the resource sectors and the growing technology economy as a whole. 
Okay, so so that make that makes good sense there, given the background that um, Alberta has in, in the geospatial industry and geospatial spatial education. Um, so I'm assuming when you are the CEO of a company like this, you see a lot of interesting projects, a lot of in, interesting uh, business cases. What what makes a great business case in, in terms of geospatial? Is it uh, deciding to use a particular platform or focusing on a particular industry? Yeah, that's a great question. We. We are very much interested in pushing the boundaries of science and technology, but also staying grounded and solving real problems with real customers who are going to pay you real money to solve that problem. We tend to see companies across a whole, a whole spectrum, right? So the best ones know exactly which problem they're solving. They know exactly who their customer is and what problem that customer needs solved. It's a bit redundant to say that twice, but that's a key thing. Because if you don't know what you're trying to accomplish, it becomes impossible to sell it to anyone. And then on top of that business piece, we're looking for innovation, uh, and particularly innovation within geomatics, right? So the more novel it is, the more interesting it is, and the more it's pushing the boundaries of what's possible today, the more interested we are because we think it has a better opportunity. So that, there's a lot of really interesting interesting points there. So we're talking about pushing the boundaries, but at the same time, we're, push, we're talking about solving very real problems. So how do you distinguish between a great idea and a fad or something that's just a flash in the pan or, or perhaps just a crazy idea? Well, what makes the difference there between innovation and a dumb idea? Yeah, you, you've hit on something really interesting because I think if you look at really innovative ideas, they're almost indistinguishable from the crazy ones. And if you think about our friend uh, Clayton Christensen, who talked about this in The Innovator's Dilemma, the, the solutions in the early phases often seem completely unrealistic. It might not solve the problem. It might be crazy expensive. It might be an entirely different approach. But over time, you start to see that these things compete on a different vector and they're solving a problem in a unique way or are in fact creating new market opportunities. Now, Sometimes it's just a bad idea or it's just a technology looking for a problem. And we've seen our fair share of those too. Those are pretty quick to identify because they have the technology fully fleshed out. They think they know who they're going to sell it to, but it's very clear that that potential customer won't actually pay the money for that solution. So I find it can become clear as you dig into who the company is working with and what that specific problem is. Could you, could you maybe give us some ideas of solutions where, where you knew straight away this is not going to work? You, you don't have to name any names, but perhaps just give us a, a sort of broad overview of, of a solution or a company or a business case where you think, ah, this is, this, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, some of my favorite ones are just spectacularly complex. You know, they, the, they've identified a small problem or a simple problem that the customer has and gone on to create this whole complex piece of machinery and technology just to, to try and solve this very simple problem. And it's obvious that they're looking to apply what they've got to this simple thing, and it doesn't necessarily make sense. The other one I love is where they've completely misrepresented the market. And they've got a technology, they've identified the problem, and you ask them, all right, you know, in, in three to five years, how much money do you think you'll make off of this? You know, we've had companies tell us they're going to make $500 million in the next five years off a of specific technology. And while I appreciate the grandeur that they're, they're looking at, 
it, it's just not really realistic that they're going to go after typically a small market and capture that much value in such a short period of time. Those ones are just completely out of the ballpark. I'm curious to know, so, so this is a geospatial podcast, we talk about geospatial location intelligence, that kind of thing here. So uh, I'm wondering, these companies that you work with, the, the ones that you decide have a shot at being successful, do they market themselves as being geospatial companies? Are they going out into the marketplace and saying, hey, we have a location intelligence solution we have to, to your spatial problem? Not very often, honestly. You know, you and I were both geospatial people. We've built our careers, we've built our experiences in the geospatial domain, and I suspect many of the listeners have too. But when they're, they, they, these companies are going out and solving problems, they don't see it from that point of view. You know, we see that as the key piece because that's what we've been trained towards. But for the technology providers and for the customers, what they're often more interested in is things like operational efficiency, reducing risk, increasing safety, increasing performance. It's those sorts of somewhat mundane business objectives that really are driving it. In a lot of cases, they don't really care what's happening behind the scenes. They just want their problem solved. It just so happens that geospatial is the best way to solve those particular problems. Yeah, I think you, you gave some really, really good insights there. I want to take this a step further. I, I realize that you're mostly dealing with, with businesses, but I think that you might have some insights for geospatial professionals. Do you think they could learn something from the approach that these, these companies that you work with are, are using in terms of their marketing strategies? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think anytime you're going out and trying to uh, help a person with a problem, and let's face it, you know, selling is, is, a, is a personal thing, right? I'm a human, you're a human, we're trying to connect on that level. It, it's worth paying attention to, to the specific problem and the specific outcomes that that person is driving towards. And then, you know, being able to communicate with them how you can attach and solve that problem for them, right? So, you know, we've funded companies where they're all about efficiency, and they're all about helping uh, manufacturers of particularly think large things like automobiles, helping large auto manufacturers be more efficient in their, in their assembly lines. Now they do this through indoor location technology at a super precise level, but the auto manufacturer probably doesn't really care how that device works or uh, the specific technology behind it. What they know is it gives them an X percent increase on their throughput and their quality, and that's what they're after. Which makes perfect sense. So if I could try and summarize that here, what I hear you say, or what, I, what I'm getting out of that last sentence there, was that as geospatial professionals, people working in the industry, perhaps we should have a little bit more empathy for the people that we're trying to serve, put ourselves in their position, what problems are they trying to solve, and, and perhaps not talk about the technologies so much, but the solutions. How are we going to move them forwards? That's right. Yeah. I mean, uh, ask, ask an average person uh, what type of uh, processor is in their smartphone and they wouldn't be able to tell you, right? They, they just, they don't care. But what they do care is that their phone is fast and that it boots up quickly, that it does what they need to, that has the power to process their images and their text messages. But they don't really care what kind of chip is back there making it happen. So think about who's on the other end of your device and or your system or your process and then what do they really need out of it? And I think the other piece of advice I would offer to people in the geospatial industry is that more and more maps are not necessarily the output that your client wants, right? If you think about 
land use analysis or road design or you know even even satellite imaging in a lot of cases the client isn't interested in seven hard drives full of pretty pictures you know what they want to know is uh, how busy are those parking lots what do the crops look like this year you know are my uh, are my sworn enemies moving tanks into position that I need to be aware of and they don't want to have to sift through that whole stack of hard drives and look at all those pretty pictures. They just want the intelligence that comes out of it. I think that's a really interesting insight there because I think people that start off in, in GIS, for example, there was such a strong focus on the map, the visual output, and uh, which is great, of course, because maps can show so much information in you know in in one picture. But I think that's really interesting that you said that there's more focus on you know just tell me the answer. What is the answer to the question? And and I I'm imagining anyway. Could you please make the process repeatable so we can check the answer again tomorrow and the day after? That's right. And I think, you know, as geospatial people, we often, again, we love the map. I, I love maps. Uh, I tend to take them hiking with me in hard copy. It's the first app I open on my phone. But not everyone is like that, right? And what they want to know is the specific answer. How close is this restaurant? How do I get there? And then how do I get there over and over and over again? I think what that gives us, though, is an opportunity to move ourselves up the value chain and think about the ways in which we as location professionals are adding value to our customers and our clients, right? We can provide that insight. We can provide that detailed knowledge. We can provide the high level technical background to make those sorts of solutions possible and making it really, really easy for them. And I think there's a lot of value in that because it's very hard to get to simplicity, but when you do, it's incredibly powerful. So right at the start of the conversation, we talked a lot about innovation. And this is a word that we hear again and again, innovation, innovation. It's, it's the thing that's going to drive us forward. It's going to solve the problems in the future. But, but I'm curious now, because you deal with a lot of innovative companies, how do they overcome that if it isn't broken, don't fix it? What, what are they doing that's helping move people forward and to, to, to move to these new solutions that they're offering? Yeah, so I think the trick is understanding the notion between something being broken and something being an opportunity, right? So one of the companies we've worked with lately reads meter information. So the gas meter, the electricity meter, those devices on people's houses, they have a novel way of reading those meters. And in the past, the utility companies would pay someone to drive around and walk into everyone's backyard and look at the number on the dial and write the number down. And then that evolved to systems where they could drive around and collect that information. And the company we're working with now has a system where they can fly in an aircraft and collect that information. So the system before was working fine, right? It, they, they were getting the knowledge, they were getting the meters, they were billing their clients, everyone was relatively happy, but it cost a lot of money and it was relatively dangerous. You know, um, everyone believes driving cars to be quite safe and it's reasonably safe, but you log that many miles, you're bound to have some incidents. With an aircraft, they can collect, you know, entire cities in a matter of days it's remarkably cost-effective. So here's an example where something wasn't really broken per se, but there was sure a lot of room to improve it. And when they were able to demonstrate to the executives, look, our system can save you money and time and safety and add on nice things like reducing greenhouse gas emissions, that becomes a very easy sell. 
So again, we're back to the idea of selling in. We're back to the idea of demonstrating, you know, that we have a solution that works and that there's a business case behind that. And of course, all this can be wrapped up in, in communication. And this is something I think that we could all improve on. Who is our target audience? What message do they need to hear? And how am I going to get that to them in the most efficient way? So I'd like to move off now and talk a little bit uh, about some of the trends that you see in the industry, because again, you're working with a lot of different companies and I guess you have the opportunity to to sort of see what's working and what's not working and, and where people are focusing their energy right now. Yeah, we're seeing a couple of interesting trends coming out and I think it's an interesting confluence of the time as well. So we're seeing a bit of a backlash on privacy. We have a popular uh, coffee chain here in Canada called Tim Hortons. And they recently, uh, somewhat recently, moved their uh, points programs to an app. But a, a reporter from the Financial Times did an expose that said this app was pinging your location, you know, something like every five minutes, even when you weren't using it. And it was even recording things like every time you went into a Starbucks or a competitor. And it was feeding all of that back to the big brand that owns Tim Hortons. And for most people, when they go on and they engage that app and they say, yes, you can use my location so I can find the nearest store, you know, they haven't in the past been thinking about all the consequences of that information. But we're seeing a trend now where people are becoming more and more privacy conscious and more aware of those sorts of transgressions. I should say the company has now disabled or has claimed to have disabled that tracking and they are under investigation by some ethics watchdogs here in Canada. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. But I believe that privacy is becoming an area for innovation as more and more people begin to understand uh, with the implications of it. And then on the flip side, you know, we are all carrying around these pocket computers that are internet connected, that have incredible cameras on top of them with GPS chips activated. And I think we're entering an, an interesting time of pervasive mapping. You know, when everyone has access to location information and the ability to contribute that back into the whole. So when you think about pervasive mapping, are we talking about something like OpenStreetMap or do you have a bigger vision in mind? So I think OpenStreetMap is the one that kind of blew it open and demonstrated that the community is willing to contribute information to the map. And I think if I take that to its next logical conclusion, we, we are approaching a time when we will have hyper-accurate knowledge and information of location, which will allow us to build a one-to-one -one scale map. Wow. Okay. So a one-to-one, -one, we've got to talk about this a little bit more because the, just the idea of a one-to-one -one map is is fantastic. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about uh, the technology trigger. In this case, it's it's the internet, it's connectivity, and it's cell phones in our pockets. What what is the cultural trigger here? Why do you think that people are going to want to build this map and and contribute to it and maintain it? Right. Yeah, and I think that's a really good question. So. We live in an age now where everything is customizable. Everything can be adapted to our individuality, can suit us and, 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 and can, can fit the world in which we personally inhabit, right? If I think about Google, it is so good because it knows everything about me. It has 10 years of email to mine and know what I want and like and look for. And therefore, the search results can be perfectly tailored to what it thinks I want. If you think spatially, you know, we, we now have the power to contribute data to the map and then also uh, to change what we see on a digital map. I want to say a one-to-one -one map kind of sounds absurd on its face because if you think about any previous era, 
you know, you're thinking about a, a physical document. And if I was to go hiking with a one-to-one map, it, it would be absolutely absurd. You know, you, you wouldn't be able to store it anywhere and, and it certainly would be of no use. But in a digital realm, we can capture the information from smartphones, from IoT devices, from uh, all these intelligent cars driving around, from satellites, from building sensors. And we can begin to put this into a place where we have a perfect, clear picture of the world in its digital format. And we can roll out this one-to-one map in a digital format. So I, I think it's one thing to capture the, the physical world, which would be a massive undertaking in itself. Um, how do you think we, we would be able to capture the, the cultural world? Yeah, that's a good question too. You know, I, I tend to use Strava. I'm a cyclist and a runner, and I, I love Strava for tracking my physical activities. And I, I think it's interesting to look at the Strava activity layer because if you look at a popular park here in Calgary called North Glenmore, you can very easily see the trails and the pathways and the roads that are used by hikers and bikers. But if you look, there's also a, a perfect oblong oval shape out in the middle of the water. And that's not something you would get from the physical geography, right? It's not hills and valleys and, and pavement, but that's people who are, are training for rowing, right? They're, they're out there rowing around, getting their physical act, act, exercise and tracking that through the Strava app. So what we're seeing now is a psychological social layer to the map, not only what is, but how is, right? Before we were most interested in, in the physical geography of things, but in this digital era and the one-to-one map era, we can begin to layer on how we use spaces. And I think eventually that'll even get us to why we use spaces. Yeah, so, so that of course leads me to, into my next question because this is, this is a fantastic thought experiment or you know, it, I'm sure it's on the way. Someone will be working on this somewhere. So let, let's assume we, we have made this. We've got a one-to-one map and it perfectly represents the physical world and the social world, the, the cultural world. What, what do you think, what kind of problems could we solve with this? Mm-hmm. I, that's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I've got some answers, which I'll share in a moment, but I, I, I want to put a caveat on there to say, I'm not quite sure we know what all is going to be capable with that sort of technology and, and that sort of information. And often I find those sorts of data and layers lead to new outcomes that we could not have imagined. But, you know, sitting here today, uh, I'm thinking about things like active transportation, right? So I mentioned that I'm a cyclist and personally, I would love to see many more bike lanes through our city here in Calgary. And if we knew very accurately how and when both pedestrians and cyclists were using this space, you know, I think it would be very interesting to contrast that with how, how people in vehicles were using the space. And could we readjust the way that we've laid out our city? You know, if we understand the kind of trips people take, is it, with, is it within, you know, one kilometer, five kilometers, 20 kilometers? Could we readjust the way that our cities are laid out? Rather than having housing suburbs all by themselves, could we have them, you know, more built up with with other types of uh, amenities? And then could we even understand how, you know, reflecting on the the Black Lives Matter protests, could we even understand how the history of a place is coming into effect in the modern day era, right? How are the monuments and the places and the things that happened in the past, how do they affect our current life? And how do we, you know, honor that? How do we move on from that? And how do we begin to understand what we can do to reshape people's lives to be the best possible lives they can be in any given place? 
So when I hear you talk about those things, um, one of the most powerful things for me is the idea of this perfect context, right? So I'd have context to everything. It wouldn't just be my commute in the morning on the way to work or the route I take when I, when I cycle home again or the walk that I did last Tuesday. It would be the context that all this was happening in, represented in a one-to-one -one version of the world. So I could see the social context that it was happening in. I could see the physical context and it would also be relative to everybody else and I think that would be absolutely fantastic exactly that's exactly it right understanding not only where we are and what we're doing there but then why 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 do I go walking in the evening and and how does that impact my quality of life how can others begin to cycle to work like you do how can we access markets and when what does that mean for the the people who live in our cities and our communities it's it's a fascinating question, and I think having that context and that contextual understanding of society in that geospatial way will lead to many positive outcomes. Yeah, but I can see a flip side to this, and we talked a little bit about privacy before, and I think that would be a massive issue with, with something like this. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's I, admittedly one part of this experiment that I haven't fully thought through. You know, if if we live in a world where we have pervasive geospatial understanding. Does that mean you know uh, every time I leave my kitchen and walk to the bathroom? Does that mean that you know every time I go to someone else's house or someone else's shop? And how do we respect people's privacy while still desiring to understand that deeper question of why? I've seen some interesting uh, blogs and articles lately around how you really cannot you really cannot anonymize location-based information. There was some good reporting out of the New York Times back in December of 2019 about this, how they were able to, to track uh, in individual cell phones from the Pentagon back to the residence where that individual employee worked. And I think about my situation, there's only one person who works at my office and lives at my house, and it becomes very obvious then to connect all of those privacy dots. So I, admittedly, I, I don't have an answer to that question. And I think as we move forward into this era, we absolutely must bake in privacy from the very beginning, because if we don't do that, it will lead to much bigger problems than the benefits we get from it. We touched on this a little bit before, and we, we talked about privacy actually being an opportunity because whenever there's a challenge, right, there's also an opportunity. And be, because with if we go back to our own example of the one-to-one of the -one map of the world, I mean, there would be such incredible amounts of opportunity with that, with, with that data set, with that representation of, of the world, that people are going to work very, very hard, I would imagine, to solve some of these challenges around privacy, for example. I agree. I think it opens up a tremendous avenue of opportunity for companies to exploit and to launch themselves into. I don't know the specific problem yet, right? I don't know that specific problem or who is going to pay for it. But I think that would be a really interesting thing to explore, to know how we can protect people's privacy and their rights while still understanding our world at that next deeper level. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I want to sort of move away from our one-to-one -one map talk now and, and concentrate on things that are a little bit more closer to home. So I wonder if it's okay with you, I'll, I'll ask some quick-fire questions and I'd just really like to hear your, your insights on these questions. Yeah, fire away. Okay, so you're, you're a person who sees a lot of interesting use cases, a lot of interesting business cases in, in the geospatial industry. If you had to look at the industry as a whole, what is it that we should stop doing? Stop trying to sell geospatial and start understanding what people actually want. 
And so this question sort of follows on from the first one. What, what is it that we should be doing much more of? Uh, I think we should be thinking more in the three to five year time frame and building out for that positive future rather than hanging on to the past. Okay, and when you when you say that, are you thinking about uh, our approach to solving problems? Are you thinking about the tools that we're using or the platforms that that we're that we're utilizing? Yeah, I'm thinking about the tools that we're using and even the mentality that we bring to it. If we keep building things and technologies and solutions and GIS departments and academics uh, in the way that we have for the last 50 years, we'll get another 50 years like we've just had. But if we think about what, what pervasive location intelligence can mean, and if we think about the, the benefits afforded by you know, miniaturized sensors and unmanned drones and incredible satellite technology, I think we have an opportunity to build an incredible future in location understanding. When you think about the future for, for GIS professionals, as we, we, we know it today, what do you think about? Where are the opportunities? What should we be thinking about doing? So first of all, I would suggest every GIS professional go do a couple courses in communication and understanding what their bosses or clients are looking for. And then I would say, you know, lean into your specialty, right? People in the GIS field have a deep understanding of very specific things that is not replicated somewhere else. And I love Google Maps for everything it did for our industry to bring awareness in the general public. But there's so many issues around accuracy and specificity and datums and data types and all of that where GIS professionals really excel. So lean into that, but communicate the, the top line value that you're bringing to the client you're working with. John, I really want to thank you for your time. Thank you for this enlightening conversation. Thank you for your insights into the industry. Just before I let you go, where, where can the listeners go if they want to connect with you or if they want to continue the conversation? You bet. You can find us at techterra.com, T-E-C-T-E-R-R-A, or you can find me at Twitter at John underscore Neufeld. I'll be sure to put links to those, those places in the show notes. Thanks again, John. I've really appreciated it. Thank you, Daniel. It was great to be here. And that's it for this episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel. It's been a pleasure being your host again this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll be back again next week with another podcast episode. So look out for that. They usually go live on Wednesdays. So, so keep an eye out for that. Um, and I also want to remind you that all the links and the resources mentioned in each podcast episode are available at mapscaping.com. So head on over there if you're interested in that. Okay, that's it for me. We'll talk again next week. Bye.